Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to this very, very special spoiler podcast for Tomorrowland, colon, A World Beyond, uh, the Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof movie. Um, as ever, there is a caveat. This is a spoiler special. If you have not seen Tomorrowland, then just see it. Don't listen to this if you haven't seen it because we'll be discussing third act stuff and things that happen and spoilers and whatnot, hence the name spoiler special. So go away, see the film, and then come back uh, because... We're going to talk about everything. Uh, but first of all, we're going to have uh, interviews uh, with Brad Bird and Damon Lindelof in which they discuss some of the, the major incidents that happened in the film. Uh, they came into London recently. I spoke to them, listened to this, and then come back afterwards. Enjoy. Brad, a big question I'm going to kick sure. off with is uh, the Toxic Cosmos series. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Coming that, to a theatre near you. That has intrigued me. Uh, yeah. Because we're at three in the series? We started three, yeah. <laughs> we yeah, started we, three. Yeah. <laughs> you, a, we figured that the you know sequels are all the rage, so you just start with like the third you know, <laughs> movie. Yeah. Is, is it reflected in this one? Is that why uh, there's a Yeah, second? businessmen are very excited about yeah. that because apparently there's been two other uh, talk. <laughs> toxic, toxic cosmos <laughs> that have been smash hits so yeah. they don't have to worry they'll invest on it right away I know that you and Damon and Jeff Jensen went into a lot of detail about the backstory for this movie uh, yes. how much detail did you go into the toxic cosmos uh, world? I don't know you know uh, uh, you know it may be the, the next film Tox- toxic cosmos 4 <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's I'm, I'm fascinated but, it, but it's an interesting idea the, this idea that the movie has about the dissemination of information about the end of the world or about negativity to the general public mm-hmm. uh, fire signal, fire our media, is something that fascinates me. There was a couple of years ago, there were a number of films about released independently, separately, about giant planets smashing into planet Earth. And I thought right. that our governments were prepping people slowly but surely. They knew something that we that didn't. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, can you talk about that idea and where, where that came from? Well, I think that... Uh, we, we are well aware of the benefits of, of how fast media is and how quickly news can spread. However, uh, bad news it travels much more quickly and is much more robust and will get more hits on it and all mm. of that. And that hasn't changed in forever. You know, public hangings are a way of like, hey, you know, here's something bad happening that we can all be interested in. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, uh, Good news does not travel as quickly. It's not as interesting to people. Mm -hmm. And because the uh, routes for information are so robust now, Mm -hmm. you get a steady diet of every, it's like the greatest hits of what, what are the hundred worst things that happened today? Here, you know, and you go, yeah, okay, what are the hundred best things that happened today? Uh, What? Did something good happen? Not very interesting. Yeah. You know, so... It's understandable, but uh, I think there's a byproduct of it where we start to believe that the world is is a collection of the impression that we're getting mm-hmm. of the hundred worst things that happened today. You know, a hundred years ago, if somebody flipped out and killed their family in Brazil, you didn't know about it. Yeah. It didn't affect your day. Now you know about it before the bodies are cold. And and what is the the total effect of that if it, if it's a steady diet every day? And the movie explores the idea that it's a vicious cycle. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that, that Nix is. Yes, but lest we start making this movie sound like a multivitamin that, <laughs> that, 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 that every one of us must take, you know, uh, it is actually meant to be a good ride. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's tremendous fun as well, and there's such a a, a joy in the inventions that are in the movie from Frank's incredible fire extinguisher to the, the, the time grenade. Yeah, yeah. How much, how much fun time did you bomb. guys... The time yeah. bomb, yeah. That's even better. Uh, how, much fun, how much fun did you guys have coming up? We had there? a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, one of the challenges of a movie, though, is that it all has to fit into two hours. And mm. if you're telling a story along the way, you're not just having a greatest hits of, of devices. Um, you kind of have to edit out things that you're equally enthused about as well, you know, um, just to try to get it all in and have it make sense. So it's it's a real challenge, but it was wonderful to have um, Disney um, give us the support to do an, a, new, a new idea on a grand scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there did anything not make the cut in terms of weaponry and, and inventions? And well, uh, yeah, there were there were there. Were, God, I'm trying to remember it now. Um, 
but several scenes are on the DVDs, but there were also parts of the city that, that we wanted to explore, and there's just not time to do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, Toxicosmos 4. <laughs> all of that stuff will be in Toxicosmos 4. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's a film that's also filled with Easter eggs. I mean, not, not just the blast from the past scene. I mean, I, I believe there's... there's I mean, I, I, having seen the film just once, I want to go back and see it again, because... There's so much in that store, I think, to notice. Obviously, there's <laughs> yeah. the Star Wars references and Simpsons references Simpsons, yeah. and Forbidden Planet and yeah. Day the Earth Stood Still. There's a lot of stuff in there. Was that it's a geek uh, paradise? And how much of it came from you, just cramming it full of? And there's an Iron Giant reference as well. There, there, yeah, yeah, he's in there. Um, yeah. Little Incredibles, little uh, Zerg <laughs> from Toy Story uh, Two. <laughs> so yeah, no, uh, it was just uh, you know. Um, it was fun to do something geeky that was not out of place. In other yeah. words, doesn't feel like it was forced into the movie. That's the kind of place, that kind of place would have all of those things. So, you know, it was really fun. And presumably getting the rights to Star Wars stuff is was a easier. easier. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, it's kind of like um, when I did Iron Giant, people thought that Warner Brothers forced me to put Superman in there. And I was just happy that... They actually happened to know it because it greased the wheels. It, yeah. it means there was no resistance. Yeah. In other words, if it had been a 20th Century Fox film, I still would have tried to get Superman in there, you know, <laughs> and then it would have been harder. Yeah. So the fact that that they bought uh, uh, Disney uh, bought Lucasfilm when we were in production on this just made that stuff go smoother. But we have stuff from Star Trek in there and Forbidden Planet and you know a lot of different sci-fi films. Close Encounters has a poster in there, so. You know, every movie studio is represented in that that, that room. It's a freeze frame treasure trove. It is. Enjoy your freeze frame. <laughs> Six months from now, right now, you got to see it in the theater. And because there's an Iron Giant uh, figure in there as well, does that mean that Brad Bird exists in the world of Tomorrowland? And if so, would you get into Tomorrowland? I I hope that I would exist. Uh, you know, maybe I could wave a Iron Giant toy and they it would let me pass through the gate. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That pin doesn't work. You've got one on you right now. That's that, right. Yeah, that yeah, doesn't yeah. actually transport you anywhere, does it? Uh, no, it just makes me <laughs> bump into furniture and fall downstairs, which is also in the movie. <laughs> True, yeah, yeah. And there's, there's one uh, Easter egg I wanted to talk about. This may not be an Easter egg. This may be me just mishearing something or just mm -hmm. assuming something. But um, when the... Uh, I'm now I'm sure to disappoint you. You probably will. But um, <laughs> after the Blast from the Past sequence, when the, uh, when the evil smiley robots turn up and they talk yeah. to the, the police officer, uh, one of them, the, the lead one announces himself as Dave Clark. Yeah. Now there are five of them. At that point, is it a Dave Clark Five reference? I'm not imagining things. Yeah, you're Thank not you. imagining this. Thank you. That, I'm amazed that you would get that. That's such. <laughs> that's a very obscure one. Yeah, I couldn't even name you a song. But, <laughs> but when we we said it's uh, the five of them, somebody said, "Oh yeah, it's like the Dave Clark Five. And then we thought, "Well, let's name him Dave Clark." You know. Anyway, that's a really obscure. Well done, sir. Thank you well very played. much. Thank you very well much played. indeed. And uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad I got it. I thought I was going mad. No, Validation. you're not mad. You're, That's good. You're quite sane. That's good. Um, so in terms of the design itself of Tomorrowland, uh, the, the one we see in the advert, not the Nick's dystopian version, um, again, just can you talk us through some of the, the, the design and invention processes for that? The, the bottomless swimming pools, for example, things like that? Yeah, well, that was an idea that, that I had just had in sort of a... Uh, daydreamy state for quite a while and, mm. and I got a chance to put it on screen and, and you know have a, an amazing company like ILM you know mm. help bring it into being uh, so that was just a pleasure the other ideas in the city are just a mishmash of things we all sort of wanted to see and, and we're talking about um, but you know uh, if we had an infinite budget and an infinite amount of time uh, we would have loved to just kept going with that city you know mm. we had we had at one point, you asked about other things that we had. We mm. had weather, uh, uh, we had them able to control weather on a very small scale. And you could uh, have um, floral things uh, inside and have a small storm, rainstorm above the, <laughs> the thing that was controlled. And, and that was really cool. Uh, there were ideas about shrinking. Uh, elephants down to a small size so that you could have little elephants. They, they, their, their scale was 
large men, but I mean, have them around like a house pet, you know? Wow. Okay. Uh, So weird stuff like that. But, but, you know, that's what's, that was Disney's idea of the future was that it was a challenge, but that it was fun, Mm -hmm. that it, that it's something that's exciting and could be done with a sense of imagination and play. Mm -hmm. There's a line in the film where uh, Nick says to the, to the young version of, of who would become the character that George Clooney plays. Um, you know, if you were to have this jetpack, how would that make a world a better place? And he says, can't it just be fun? Yeah. And that's also part of the future. It's not, uh, this will solve uh, all the problems of the world only. It's also, you know, there should be a whammo mentality of like, you know, a Super Bowl is fun. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, what's the practical use for a Super Bowl? There is nothing other than that it's fun, <laughs> you know, and that also has to be part of the future. The contrast between the Tomorrowland we see in the ad, the one that Casey visits, and the one we ultimately see, the next dystopia, uh, is well. I would argue shocking. that uh, the tomor- the city, mm-hmm. is actually a character in the film, and it has an arc, just mm-hmm. like, and it has a coda, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so you almost have to treat it like a character. Mm-hmm. But go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's just it was shocking. I mean, if you, obviously that fits into that idea of an arc. The city itself crumbles and uh, from within and is corrupted by Nix over time. Well, the the interesting thing that we tried to convey in there is that she is fascinated with the idea of space and about leaving the planet. And so when she gets her vision of Tomorrowland and she can kind of explore it briefly, she goes to the spaceport. That's where she wants to go. She hears the word spaceport and she goes toward there and is almost able to get on a ship. Well, when they land in Tomorrowland, she's at the spaceport, and that is the one part of Tomorrowland that's completely been shut down. It mm. still is there, it's just birds are nesting there because mm. they aren't sending anything out. Yes. And that was kind of like saying we should rethink shutting down things like the space program because they are reaching out off the planet, and it's important for us to have that, that gesture of reaching out, going beyond what we know and into the unknown. That's If we cut that off, then we're cutting off our potential. Hmm. And then just last, the last uh, thing very, very quickly is the, the key relationship in the movie for me is Frank and Athena. Yes. Actually, not any, not the other characters or any other right, parents. Right. Uh, can you talk about that, that, that idea briefly and also, in a way, how delicately you have to tread when you have a, a pairing between a 12-year-old girl, even though she's well, a Well, absolutely. That, that was, a, that was a, a strange idea that was in the initial concept that, that Damon Lindelof uh, had and uh, created with Jeff Jensen. Mm. Before I got involved, that was one of the things that got me involved, was that idea. But what you're trying to do in, in a movie like this is, is boil down kind of sometimes tricky concepts to very simple gestures. And Athena is really represents the future. Um, when he's a kid, he's a very excited uh, and intrigued by the future, and he feels then he feels let down by the future, mm. and and it's kind of coming to uh, coming to terms with the future, you know, by the end of the movie, mm. and uh, you know, so we were trying to find a simple uh, sort of stylized way of representing the possibilities of the future, the hope. And then also being disappointed by the future yeah. and, and trying to reconcile your relationship to the future. So, um, you know, we're using high technology to make movies, but they're really just stories being told by the campfire. And, and you know, you just are trying to find a simple way to tell kind of um, tricky ideas. Hmm. Brad, I could talk to you all day, but uh, time is against us. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Nick. Pleasure. Thank you. Great to meet you. Uh, Damon, there's a lot of stuff to talk about <laughs> in Tomorrowland, uh, a world beyond, as is known over here. Yes. Uh, the big question, the big question is, the fight at the end between Nix and Frank, is that on the Lost Beach? Or is that, <laughs> oh, that's or is that just question. on a beach? It's, uh, they, they actually went to the Bahamas to, uh, to, to shoot that bit, and I, des- I, desperate, <laughs> I desperately wanted to go, but, it, um, but, uh, but I had to work. So uh, the, the Lost Beach was, was unavailable for, for reasons that are completely unknown to me. Oh man! Um, but uh, yeah, they went. Uh, they went for the Bahamas as opposed to Hawaii. We have lots of beaches here.
in, in, in England. Yeah, they're not very yeah. good. Yeah, they're they're a bit. Uh, They've got syringes. More rocky. Yes, yes. syringes and, and, and dog poo. But what I understand. Nevertheless, yes, you know, that would have been a more interesting fight scene. I think, <laughs> that if, uh, if you been. if you Laurie was throwing dog poo uh, at, uh, at George Clooney. Absolutely. And we, we've talked about this movie uh, a lot, but we've talked around it yes. in the past. And uh, but one of the, one of the things we did talk about last time was the idea of positivity versus negativity. Yeah. And this movie seems to me to be a, a huge middle finger in a way you can have a middle finger in a movie that's about optimism towards the, the, the nitpickers towards the naysayers of life whether it's on Twitter or somewhere else mm-hmm. it was that how it was conceived in a way well you know I, I certainly didn't you know that the, the intent of the movie is not to not to give the middle finger to uh, to anyone else as much as it is ourselves because mm-hmm. I'm a consumer of of negativity um, and um, and in the past have been a propagator of it I think it's 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 an easier um, as uh, not 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 to go into Star Wars land, but I think that the dark side is incredibly seductive um, and <laughs> yeah. and powerful, and you know it's much easier to shoot lightning bolts out of your fingertips than it is to sort of wave your hand and say these are not the droids you're looking for. It's mm. much sexier, and mm. and I think that um, I I'm pulled in by these ideas uh, like robots uh, uh, over overcoming us and making us into their their slaves and or batteries, and I, I love the Hunger Games, but I mm. also sort of feel like why have we resigned ourselves to that and why 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 is there this part of me that wants to be mean mm. um, it isn't so much that there's a tremendous amount of um, negativity on uh, the comments section or in social media but that there's also in me internally this desire to kind of uh, um, uh, uh, be mean or be critical of of things that are um, that uh, People are just kind of trying to put their best foot forward, and I, I was really curious, and not necessarily um, condemning others uh, mm. for that, but like looking inside myself and wondering why? Why do I feel this way? But Nix is interesting. Nix is a distillation of that in, in many ways. He seems to be someone who's not just standing by and letting the bad thing happen. He's someone who's actively trying to make it happen. How difficult was it to get into into that mindset? Because this man seems funkier and urbane, but he's actually a monster, really, when you get down to it. Well, I I, I think that that's certainly one way uh, uh, of looking at it. And another way of looking at it is that uh, what Nix is doing in the movie is it's it's a desperate attempt um, for him to save the world. So mm-hmm. he realized that inadvertently um, that he had this machine that uh, was predicting the future and showing a very dark future indeed. But his, his plan was, if I broadcast this idea, mm-hmm. if I show everybody that we're headed towards apocalypse, that's going to galvanize them. That's going to make them say like, oh, I don't want this to happen. I don't want the polar ice caps to melt. I don't, I don't want there to be um, widespread uh, nuclear annihilation. But when he did that as an attempt to sort of save the world, to warn us of what was coming, we loved it. We gobbled it up as, <laughs> like a chocolate eclair, as he says, uh, which, is, uh, which is a Brad Bird fastball. And I, and I think like, <laughs> oh, that, you know. Um, so, so his intentions were good. Yes. And I ultimately, it's the old Oppenheimer thing, where it's like nobody sets out to destroy civilization. Mm-hmm. But then I think when when Nick said, "I'm going to save you," mm-hmm. and we in, in, instead of being galvanized, uh, we were like, "Okay, we're good with this. We're, we're we, we believe in the apocalypse." Then he just he he just uh, turned on us and, yeah. and 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 sort of said, "You don't get to get on my lifeboat now because you don't deserve this place anymore. If you're going to accept the apocalypse, you don't get a piece of my utopia." So. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a monster, perhaps he is. You know, in many ways, a villain of the movie. But mm-hmm. I think certainly Brad, um, who who identifies with Nixon in, in a lot of ways, and and wrote that uh, phenomenal speech. Um, my my feeling was that Nix is right. Everything that he's saying is yes. is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted we wanted him to be coming from the right place, even though. Uh, his, his ultimately, he's the villain. But there is a moment when it almost seems like he's being swayed by by hope. Yes, and he deliberately turns his back on that. He does. Yeah. Be- well, very interesting. It is because um, there's there's a high degree. There's no risk um, involved in 
thinking that things aren't going to be better in the future. You, you actually insulate yourself from potential disappointment. The risk is actually in, in hope. Um, and I think because anytime we, we place hope or faith in something, um, especially the older we get and we start to experience disappointment and, um, oh, I believed in this thing and this thing let me down, yeah. um, why, why should I believe in anything? And so um, that can actually kind of bring out the worst parts of our personality um, because we're hurt. Um, and you can only get knocked down so many times before you before you say, "I'm why even bother getting up again." Hmm. Nix's uh, influence on Tomorrowland is is startling. Uh, from the the glimpse of what we have in that fantastic ad, that incredible scene, yeah, to what the the reality whenever Frank and Casey actually get there is is shocking. How much? Because I know you did a lot of backstory with Jeff Jensen as sure. well on this. So how much? How much do you know about Nix's influence on Tomorrowland to take it from the utopia to the dystopia? Yeah, we well, we had to build an entire um, chronology and timeline of of what happened in Tomorrowland over the course of a century, mm. really starting with uh, the discovery of it um, uh, in the late nineteenth century amongst these first four Tesla, Edison, Verne, and and and, and Eiffel. And so they they basically they found this this um, this dimension where they were going to build their city, and then sort of uh, Jeff built an entire sort of alt history throughout World War One and World War Two, where where they were breaking ground on this city, and there were all sorts of problems in terms of of working things out, and people got distracted by World War Two, and Tesla and Edison were not exactly agreeing upon how the how the city should be powered. Um, et cetera, et cetera. I can imagine. <laughs> and then leaping to the 1964 World's Fair where yeah. Walt got punched into Plus Ultra and, and had a, a, heavy, a heavy influence in both financing and resourcing uh, Tomorrowland. And then um, that, that began, began the reign of, of, of Nix, mm. who, who started as a scientist who wanted to share this place with the world, but, but gradually and had this plan to um, show it to the world and go public. But then uh, began to dis- decide like, oh, the world isn't ready for this place, or the, or, or more importantly, the world doesn't deserve this place. Yeah. And he started banishing people um, between when that advertisement was recorded in the 1980s. That's what mm-hmm. Casey experiences, mm-hmm. and the world that that is left in 2015 when Frank comes back. And so it, it did become a little bit more of a dictatorship. And mm-hmm. that Nick said, well, if you disagree with whether or not this place should be shared, I'm going to throw you out. And if you start talking about this place um, and telling people that it exists, um, I'm going to I'm going to send some robots with very nice teeth to uh, to decimate you. <laughs> he's a bad one. I'm telling you, he's a bad one. He um, is. But, um, he is. The, the the founding fathers tickled me enormously. How did you have it upon that quartet? In uh, well, I, I think that uh, alt history is something that's 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 always been a real uh, uh, fun part of um, of of absorbing. Uh, fiction, if not science fiction, for me, and so this idea of sort of imagining um, certain historical figures in the in the same room together in terms of what they would talk about. Um, but I think that we also sort of looked at um, Tomorrowland and Disneyland as as the um, as the as the jumping off point, and there is this certainly a, a very strong Jules Verne influence because we wanted a, a fiction writer to be part of this quartet mm-hmm. in addition to you know two great scientific minds and an architect yeah. um, Eiffel himself who mm-hmm. you know Eiffel is a fascinating figure because um, this idea and of, and of course I'm not um, I'm not trying to relate the Eiffel Tower um, on a meta level to the movie but I do think that when the Eiffel Tower um, was first sort of unveiled everybody hated it and so <laughs> you know this idea of it, and it was supposed to just be a temporary exhibition Ambition, which yeah. blows my mind the idea that they're going to put this thing up and then just take it down and the you know um but but then it's become kind of the, the one of the most uh, uh iconic if not the most iconic structures uh in, in the history of the world and Absolutely. so i think that eiffel was a w- was a guy who um built things that were ahead of their time mm. um i think is is pretty cool uh, yeah, the use of the Eiffel Tower in the movie is the best on film since A Few to a Kill or, oh, well, oh my or God. Superman 2, and that's yeah. the high praise. But, there, there you go. Uh, did you dance around the room when you first came up with the idea that there's a rocket ship under the Eiffel Tower? Uh, I, I, I think that it, at first the, the idea of like, what if the Eiffel Tower was actually a launch pad? If it just like sort of split in half and there was an antique rocket ship, rocket ship down there. It, it, the, the first moment was like, oh my God, that is so cool. And right on the heels of that was this idea of like, it's so absurd. 
uh, it's never going to work. I mean, people are going to just throw their popcorn at the screen and, and, and boo. <laughs> like, it's just ridiculous. And I think that that's sort of like the message of the movie, which yeah. is, you know, you start with something kind of hopeful and playful and fun and ridiculous, and then you actually have to kind of persevere and say, uh, okay, like, let, let's give it a try and, and, um, and see what happens. And I think that, obviously... Um, only someone like Brad could could pull off an idea that that absurd. But I do think that when you actually see it in the movie, mm. um, there there is this kind of um, amazing, wonderful, impractical like sort of. Oh, this is your back door into Tomorrowland. It's you know, um, it it's, it seems um, a little over the top, uh, mind you. But I kind of think you have to go for broke. Just to double check, there is actually no spaceship under the Eiffel Tower. I I, I cannot confirm or deny that, uh, Chris. <laughs> At this time. Yeah. This time. <laughs> 25 I think, years. I think, but there is, you know, that room that they go into at the top of the Eiffel Tower yeah. where the where the wax figures are is real. Like, okay. I mean, I, we didn't shoot it in the Eiffel Tower, sure. but, uh, but that is, that is, that's actually there, uh, Eiffel's apartment. Fantastic. And, uh, and the last thing is uh, the, the concept at the end of the, uh, the tachyons. I've been able to see 40, 50 seconds into the future. Sure. Where did that come from? Was that, uh... um, well, it, 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 it mostly came from Watchmen. Um, uh, you know, at the in the in the final issue of of Watchmen, um, uh, Ozymandias is trying to um, obfuscate um, Doctor Manhattan's ability to be a god, mm. and he does this by blasting him with uh, tachyonic fields, mm. which confuse Doctor Manhattan in terms of the present, the past, and the future. Mm-hmm. So he start he starts experiencing things that have not quite happened yet. Yeah. And so we thought it would be cool, especially because the movie is about glimpsing a future that may or may not be inevitable. Yeah. So this moment where Casey sort, sort of sees her hat blow off and Nick says, too late. It's sort of like, you see the future, but there's not enough time for you to change it. Um, and then Athena, she sees Frank get shot mm. um, and she does have enough time to change it. So the moral of the story is like, you act. these things are not inevitable. They are just possible futures. And if you act quickly and decisively, um, they are not necessarily uh, predestined. It's a little bit of an appointment in Samara, the, the opposite of. Watchmen's influence, it's everywhere. Every, uh, that was the defining uh, uh, um, uh, pop cultural work of, of, of my young life. <laughs> uh, even more so than Star Wars, I think. So that was Brad Bird and Damon Lindelof and joining me in the pod booth to discuss the ins and outs of Tomorrowland, which we're gonna we're not gonna call it Tomorrowland and World Beyond. It's just Tomorrowland in this pod booth. Ollie Richards. Hello. Hello, Ollie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. You wrote Empire's four star review. I did. And I think you may be, uh, maybe myself and you are the only people who think it's a four-star film. We may be um, allies. There are others in the world. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen the review roundups. There are others. But uh, yeah, it's just, I yeah. think it's packed with ideas and that kind of, that does a lot of work for me. Yeah, absolutely. As you said on Twitter recently, films that swing for the fences should be applauded. Exactly. And I, I agree with that one. Uh, I agree with what you said, Ollie. Well done. Thank you very um, much. First time. There you go. And uh, also joining us is someone who's not in the four-star camp. Uh, it's Ali Plum. How are you? Hello, how are you? You know what? I'm fine. Great. I'm a, I'm a bit worried about how much time we have to do this. We can do it. We can do it. Yeah. I would like to start the podcast with a little bit of a Futurama reference because in Futurama they go, Welcome to the world of tomorrow! Mm-hmm. And I feel like this has a similar sense of oompa, especially the trailers. We're all like, oh, look at this. We're going to see that and jetpacks and swimming pools where you jump into a swimming pool then out of a swimming pool then out another swimming pool. Whoa, the world <laughs> of tomorrow! And I just didn't really get that in this. I felt like they were to paraphrase what was said in the film, mm. selling me something that didn't really exist. And I know there are a lot of thoughts going on, and if you actually sat down and watched the film properly and analysed it, that was all on purpose. They're doing it to kind of explain how we're jaded people here, here on Earth, and not in the other dimension, on Earth. But I'm willing to accept that, but I felt there were too many kind of slightly, not irritating per se, but difficult little moments which I felt could have been easily explained or, or kind of solved that they kind of just let happen. And uh, here's an example. When George, uh, George's character, Frank, is uh, exiled in his 20s, let's say, let's say he's in his 20s, he is shown, you see Athena, sensibly they don't show the younger version of George, but you see Athena on the edge, uh, looking out forlornly, going, oh God, I feel to blame, though I don't feel emotion. Where is he walking to? <laughs> I don't know, like a transporter thing. I don't know. How? That doesn't matter. How do you, what is the, you know, huh? I felt like I had that about 12 times, maybe more, in this film, of the, huh? What? 
And this is me just being pernickety. And if you listen to the spoiler podcast, you can ignore everything I say. If, if you listen to this, you probably like the film. So why are you listening to some knob end saying they didn't like little tiny bits of it? But if you can walk, when you when you touch the pin, if you uh -huh. walk straight down a line, so yeah. you're in someone's house, you walk straight, like on a flat surface, and you hit a wall, you stop, right? Uh -huh. Because the wall's in your way. So what happens when you go up or down? Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. You go upstairs, suddenly you're walking in air. So what you want to see is now and again a cut back to Casey yeah. when she when she goes out to that sort of lake field. area, that yeah. field. Uh, so she gets on the 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 travelator and she gets on the train in the Tomorrowland advert. And she's flying, and she's in the flying air. around and she's doing all that sort of stuff. So what happens to her in real life? Because she's clearly moving. So does she does she actually levitate? It's a, it it's a film that is like oh believe in it and it will come. But then also it's quite practical at the same time, which is why I felt these thoughts. But that's just a pin thing, isn't it? The pin thing is a preview. Yeah, so she can't actually react with anything at that point. So that's her. She's kind of. They're not really going into the world. They're going. She's going into the advert that they'd made. Yes. So, but when they actually go in and interact properly, uh -huh. then she is. She goes through their machine that goes up, makes her faces go all wibbly. <laughs> I don't know. It's slightly different. There's wibbliness involved. This is what I mean. The film feels a bit wibbly. <laughs> it, it is, but it's a, it's a it's a film that is just. It's all about believing in stuff. Yeah, I know. And That's it doesn't... why I'm getting out early. I'm just saying this pernickety shit yeah. because... I kind of feel like when you're doing that kind of film, everything doesn't need to stick together. It's like mm. it's a bit like going through a Star Wars or any kind of fancy movie and going, yeah, but if you time travel on that, not that that relates to Star Wars. I know what you're saying. But why doesn't that make sense and that makes sense? Is that, yeah, fine, you can deal with those ridiculous details if you want. But that's not really what the film is being made for, is it? Do you think it succeeded in what it was being made for? I do, yeah. Except on one level, which I think it didn't really have as much heart as it should have. You felt it was going to, should have been warmer? Yeah. So I think it very much succeeded in its thing of why can we not just have wonder for wonder's sake? Why does everything have to be... Why does everything have to have a purpose and have, you have to examine absolutely everything? Why like can me. you not, Exactly. Uh, why can you not just hope? Why are there twats like Ali? Exactly. Yeah, I believe that was that was <laughs> nearly the tagline. I think so. Yeah, but it mostly succeeded. The other, but the place it kind of almost it didn't quite fall apart, but it just disappointed. Was in was it when it got to the end? Yeah. It just at every point I thought I've no idea where this is going. This is this is every turn. This is bringing something that I wasn't expecting. I was having such a great time, mm. and then as soon as it got to the part where it found Hugh Laurie's character again. There was, other you than the, like the, the ball that I didn't really understand. I found that whole bit, when you see Hugh Laurie again, from that next 20 minutes, I thought, this is the film I was paying to see. Really? I know there wasn't the, the world of tomorrow I was hoping for, like the luscious, verdant greenery and the swimming pools and stuff. It looked a bit like an abandoned theme park. No joke intended. I liked all that bit. I love the echoes of time. I thought that was really interesting. I thought you could make a whole movie about that, mm. where you saw for half a second what you could do, or could not do, but you will do, or will you? I liked all of that. I like the jetpacks actually being used. I liked seeing the robots come back again. I love the the um, Stargate portal. I liked all of that stuff. I thought it was fast and, and exciting. And when Nix delivers that big speech, I would have liked a bit more time to digest it because there's yeah. so much to think yeah. about there. I'm kind of with Ollie on, the, on this one a little bit. I think when he turns into Basil Nick's position, it just the, the, the life drains out in the movie mm. a little bit. Also, I... I get what they're trying to do, this idea that, you know, we're in a vicious cycle and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and that our own negativity will ultimately doom us. Um, and I, I, I like it's a film about optimism. I like it's a film about believing and it's a film about hope and it's a film that laments things like the space program being shut down um, and laments a general lack of invention. But at the same time, we also live in a world where there are wonders every day. Mm. There are things that are inventions every day that, you know, a hundred years ago you would never have dreamed of. But I kind of felt it, it, it grinds its gears towards the end uh, a little bit. Um, and it is, I think, the next character that it, it seems undefined to me exactly yes. why he's standing back and letting the world end. Uh, just for no real reason. At the beginning of the film, you know, because his, his character name is very on the nose and he's nixing everything. Right? The first thing we see him do is he nixes the rocket pack. Um, and I'm just intrigued to see the, but the, the journey of a man who clearly in the 1960s was still somewhat inclusive in terms of the idea of Tomorrowland, the concept of Tomorrowland and this, this all-inclusive idea that it could be this utopia for, for mankind. And I didn't quite get his journey from 
that character at the beginning of the film, even though he's nixing things, mm -hmm. to the guy at the end of the movie who's actively participating in the deaths of billions of people. Didn't quite get that. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I think, I mean, part of that's possibly explained away by the fact you just need a counterpoint to that. You need the cynic, you need to show that absolute cynical element. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree with you. He didn't feel, he wasn't, he didn't feel fully fleshed out. He didn't 100% make sense. I mean, the robot made more emotional sense than, than he did. Yeah. He didn't feel evil to me necessarily either. I was thinking, oh, there, there must be building up the Nix as this figure of, of great evil. Uh, he has a robot army that are running around blithely disintegrating people in the middle of streets. And, okay, so he's, he's when we get to him, he's going to be properly off the chain, nuts. And he wasn't. He was quite reasonable. But I think he got saddled with a big chunk of exposition, which uh, I think we really... I haven't, I've only seen the film once, and I, I would like to kind of listen to it again and see if he really gives us reasonings. But, but apart from that, I thought the movie had lots of ideas and lots of bounce and ferve and... Um, it's it's an interesting movie. Structurally, it's interesting as well. The way it begins with that sort of fake out, the delivering, you know, the breaking the fourth wall, mm. delivering the speech to you know, to uh, to to camera, and the film breaks down a couple of times. The, the story breaks down. I thought that stuff was interesting, but ultimately didn't really seem to have a place given the reveal of who Frank and Casey are telling the story to. I would. I mean, I've no idea. I've got nothing to back this up. But I would presume yeah. that was quite a late addition to. Yeah. Look, guys, this is quite complicated. We need to explain this very quickly because it is extremely complicated. It really yeah. is, and I actually admire it for it. Yeah, totally agree. And it's one of the things I really like about it is that um, it's based on nothing. You know, you say Tomorrowland, that means nothing to people. It means to some people, it means a bit of a theme park, but it means nothing in the sense of a story. And it did so much with that, whereas it could have very easily just been a, hey, let's go to space kind of adventure. Yeah, and it could be, what's it like being a regular human not used to jetpacks? Yeah. Which it, apparently is what, it, what there was going to be a Tomorrowland movie years ago, a few years ago with The Rock, who was going to star as an astronaut who wakes up near 3000 or something like that. And, uh, and obviously he wakes up in the world of tomorrow and he doesn't know anything works and he breaks Futurama. everything. Yeah, yeah, this is The Rock's Futurama. Yeah. And uh, then David Lindelof came on board and... Nixed the rock. Nixed, yeah, he, was, he became David Nix right from the off. And uh, he, he had this idea, this, this, this film that celebrated the idea of tomorrow, the idea of hope. Uh, but then from there, how he and Bird... I, I don't, it's an unenviable task for them to both to break this story down and to make it presentable within two hours. And you can see why there are flaws and you can see mm. why it doesn't exactly do it. But yeah, it, it gives it a damn good go. Yeah, this is the thing that I like more than anything is that you just you walked away with plenty to think about, mm. which is not what you would have expected from that kind of movie. And I do, I do absolutely love its message of why did we used to be tomorrow can be anything, and now that the the human thing is now to say well tomorrow's gonna be terrible, maybe not, maybe not the next day, but there's going to be a day very soon where everything's going to go completely wrong. And that just never used to be the thing. And Walt Disney's whole thing of, he wanted to build Epcot because he believed that that could be an ever-expanding city in the way that Tomorrowland is here and would always be a promise of, tomorrow is a better day. Mm. And I like this thing of, well, hang on, look at what could happen. It doesn't have to be terrible. Mm. And I think, yeah, that is, that is a huge, huge idea to try and wrap a movie around. And it does, a it does a really good job of it. The fact that it goes a bit onto the rails and predictable at the end and just, I thought, killing the villain, I thought, I found really disappointing. Apart from his, his death line, wouldn't you yeah. say? Yeah, <laughs> yes. And I, we were talking about this. I, I think that was something in the contract where Hugh Laurie, he's got more money than you could possibly imagine. House has set him up for life. As Chris said earlier, he does jazz now because he can. And yeah. it's Hugh Laurie and whatever. He said, yeah, no, I'll be in your film. Got one rule. I get to say bollocks in a George Clooney kids movie. Are we in? <laughs> All right, you're in. I think also a lot of Americans probably don't realise it's a swear word. So it's, oh, look at this charming made-up funny English word. <laughs> you mewling quim. Yeah. Bollocks. Uh, why were you disappointed by that? I just, I always think killing the villain is just, it's kind of such an easy out. It doesn't, I just think they could have done, could have tried to find something, something more interesting to do with him. He didn't have to die for that yeah. story to be complete. It's kind of interesting. Casey, who's supposedly the main character, for me, gets sidelined towards the end when it becomes more about Frank and Athena and more about Frank and Nix. And Casey's still involved a little bit 
but really it's Athena who saves Frank at the end. It's not Casey. And the relationship between Nix and Frank Walker I thought was really interesting. I thought maybe a, a different wrinkle on it would have been to have gradually Nix, sorry, Frank, and maybe the his newfound optimism, which is personified in Casey, maybe he could have used that to actually... Um, rope Nix into a plan to actually save the Earth. It's not mm. too late. We can actually do this. We can work together. And then they realize, actually, maybe it is too late and we have to bring the machine down together rather than having Nix turn it into the standard moustache-twirling bad guy, which didn't really fit, I thought, with the way he was treating Frank. There was no. the, the, that speech with Frank, you almost see the idea that Frank is almost getting through to him and then he hits him with the, the tuning fork and knocks people out. Um because that's what bad guys do. And it just felt a little bit rote to me. It could have been something more interesting. I, yeah, I agree with that. Why is the hat so important Then she loses it? Because it's her dad gave it to her. And she let it go. She didn't let it go, it blew away. That's why I feel so bad for her. Yeah. I, th- I think um, Britt Robinson's actually really good in this role. Mm. I think she has a lot of work to do. Yeah. She's got to be the audience, but she's also got to convince the audience that they're enthusiastic and optimistic about everything, but they're also basically arsonists and thieves and... It's okay to drop a drone into a military slash government site and commit all sorts of heinous felons. Anyway, no, she's fun and I like her and I hope she gets another big role. I think I think this is, will set her up, hopefully in you know other casting agents' eyes, for bigger and better things. I'm so sure she will. I think she's, she's good. She's also in a Nicholas Sparks movie. I forget the name of it, but the one with Scott Eastwood, which <laughs> usually sets you up quite well. Yes. Uh, but yeah, she's got a really tough job to do because really that character tough. could be horrible. Because she's this punk kid who yeah. just vandalizes things and you know doesn't take any shit from nobody. And but she's re- I think she's really charming all the way through it. Mm. Like the bit the bit at the top of the Eiffel Tower when she knocks the guy out and then is it a robot? Is it a human? She's like, human. I thought that was really you know really good comic timing and really sold a moment that yeah. could have been horribly precocious. Yeah. I feel sorry for George Clooney when they jump through the giant space egg which is in the back of a car park somewhere on their way to Paris because then she just drinks all the Coca Cola. And George, who I think is easily, even if I do a little bit of forgiving maths here, in his 60s, I go, oh, God, he could probably do with a sip of something, maybe a cup of tea, sit down. She has it. But this is what, what I want to bring on to here. It has an element of humour there where she does that massive burp. And you go, yes, OK, a bit more of that, please. I think the movie needed a few more silly, yeah. jokey moments just to kind of punctuate the, yeah. is it the end of the world type stuff. 59, 59 I'm guessing. He's eight years old in 1964. The film takes place in 2015. It's 51 years has elapsed. Ergo, 59. And he could have taken some of that milkshake that Nick's refers to that keeps you young. But he chose not to because that's the the sort of guy Frank is. He's got values and and morals. He stands up for what he believes in, but also stands by and does nothing until someone knocks on his door. Which is interesting. Why would they leave Frank alive knowing that he knows what he knows? It seems That seems interesting to me. They're, They're quite happy to kill everyone else. Who knows about Tomorrowland? It's like they, a respect for him because he created this machine. There mm. seems to be some sort of respect because the robot, the smiley robot, that was a bit of humour I loved when they walk in and give that shit-eating grin. Hello. <laughs> yes. You have 10 seconds to comply. I loved all of that. Yeah, I see. it seems to be like they respect him for being this great scientist and they would never actually get rid of him because mm. we have a deal. Until their circumstances are forced and they have to... Force the hand. They, yeah. Thank you for phrase that in English um, yeah yeah that's interesting but yeah but in going back to the idea of invention because um, I didn't I, I, you know I, I interviewed um, I interviewed Bird Lindelof I didn't get enough time to go in depth and ask things for example was the beginning of the movie changed completely because it feels weird to me that you start off with Frank it does feel weird to me to start off with Frank. It feels like this is the movie that should start with Casey and you should be with Casey until older Frank turns up and the jetpack stuff Maybe that's a flashback. And maybe that's structured that was somewhere else in the movie at another point. But um uh but it is a movie that's about invention. And I think the home invasion sequence in Frank's house is one of the most inventive sequences of the year. Oh terrific. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. Uh I love the fight in the Blast from the Past shop as well. Um and I love the Eiffel Tower. Mm. It's got, yeah. yeah, and it's it's got so much going for it that I kind of feel bad for it that it is being, it's not done that well critically, and I can see a tidal wave of snark about they had it on Twitter, 
And I just feel a little bit bad for it because there's a lot of stuff here that we should be praising. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I think there's, well, we've said it several times, but mm. trying hard can so often be, you know, called a bad thing that you're just, you're far too earnest. And it's not an earnest movie, it's a fun movie, but it's trying so hard to do things that are unusual. And yeah, Brad Bird is a fantastic filmmaker. This is, by some stretch, not his best film, because yeah. most of his films are genius. But he's such a great filmmaker. There are so many terrific bits that if it was any other film that had not tried half as hard as this, but had had that home invasion sequence and the fight in the shop, I think we'd be getting a lot better reaction than it is. If it had otherwise just been a quite generic sci-fi action movie, people would be giving it a much easier time. But I think because it's tried so hard, and some people either didn't go with it or didn't want to go with it, mm. that people go, ah, pff, you know, this bit doesn't make sense, or you know, yeah, that shit. bit's confusing. Yeah, yeah all, this, all this cynical kid stuff. You're the reason the world's yeah. going to end. I'm happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> you okay? I'm totally okay. <laughs> but going back to what you were saying about um, Frank and Casey, yeah. I, think it, I think it's the right thing that it goes, because it's Frank's story. It's not really Casey's story. Yeah. Because Casey is, from beginning to end, she's an optimist. She never believes that things are going to go wrong. Whereas Frank went from yeah. being, you know, being an optimist to having everything kicked out of him to then believing again. So, okay, you know, she's... Yeah. she's She's the catalyst. He's not. He's not the catalyst. So you think it's important we see that optimistic Frank at the very, very beginning. So we, when we meet Frank, which is over an hour into the movie before they un- uncork Clooney. So we, when we meet old Frank, fifty-nine-year-old Frank, he is a curmudgeon. He is cantankerous, and he has basically given up in the world. So it's important that we see young Frank, who is the complete opposite. So we get insight into what's happened. Absolutely, because oh, okay. then All you right. can see what happens with someone, because he was like Casey. Yeah. And you can see what happens if something bad happens to someone who is that optimistic and they go off on the on the uh, the wrong path. Uh, what do we think about uh, certain things in the movie? The idea that Tomorrowland was founded by Jules Fern, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla, and uh, Eiffel. Gustav. Gustav Eiffel, thank you. I always forget that. Fun little quirk. I mean, Lindelof talked a little bit about why they chose those four people, but... I wanted more of that. I yeah. wanted the idea that there was this other dimension where they were creating all this great tech for so long, but they were always doing this amazing tech and they were just trying to get it as right as possible before they brought people over. And it was such a big idea and everyone was, you know, it was like Beethoven's an alien, that kind of idea that for all this time these people have been part of this secret society trying to make the world a better place. I would have thought they were going to do that thing of, you know, when mobile phones came along? Yeah, that was our thing. We did that. We gave you a bit of Tomorrowland because we wanted to give you a boost. I thought there would be more of that sort of thing. More mm. of Tomorrowland on Earth. But then again, I guess you get this idea that once Nix takes over, that he does, he puts a kibosh on everything, which I, you know, which, which is kind of interesting. We get, but we only get really that one glimpse, don't we, of Tomorrowland as it should be. And it was disappointing to me in a way that when they got to Tomorrowland, the real Tomorrowland, that it was, you know, you, you get the, uh, the the picture of the beautiful five-star hotel and you get to Tomorrowland and it's a building site. And it was dilapidated and everything's a bit run down and the, the sense of joy has been bleached out of it. I kind of get that, but I do wonder if it had been more interesting whether it had still been that utopia, but just under a dictator. Because it doesn't feel right to me that Nix would make everything... Would would uh, would impact negatively on everything. You know, Lindelof said that he shuts down the space program, which echoes the the idea that the space program is being shut down on Earth. But I don't know. Do you do you do you agree with that? Do you think it might have been more interesting once they had once they got to Tomorrowland? It was still a place of of wonder. I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. Because at one point, he basically says, "We don't want to tell people on Earth about this place because look, they would just want to come here and ruin it." And it's like, "Well, look around you, mate. You've you've ruined it." But if it was still incredible, wouldn't that hurt the film's point? That if he was trying to protect this thing and it was, it was still a utopia, mm-hmm. isn't it? Then well, well, he's got a point. Where, but he's whereas I think what's happened is that he's he's let the utopia thing slide. He might well think he's still in this incredible yes. place that deserves protecting. Whereas actually, all the wonder that he originally believed has kind of seeped out of this place, and it's now just. Mm. He's now let it become okay. crummier than Earth. Maybe it's about different different uh, perceptions as well. Maybe he thinks it's still a place of wonder. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's, that's what I, I meant to say incredibly ineloquently. 
<laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mentioned there one of the key relationships in the movie being Frank and Nick's, and it's almost. I mean, there's a relationship obviously between Frank and Casey, and Casey and her dad. That's a big, big one as well. But uh, and Bird confirmed this. One of the key relationships in the film is actually Frank and Athena, which is a, a, an interesting route for a movie like this to take, and it's got a lot of flack. Uh, I've seen already on Twitter with people who are uncomfortable with the idea, especially the ending, that a 59-year-old man uh, can be in love with someone who looks like she's 12 years old, even though she's older than that, obviously, in years. But I think they're looking into this too much. I think they're reading too much into it. It's As, as Bird said in the interview, it's, um, it's more of an ideal that he's in love with, that is just personified in... In the in the body of this robot, uh, Athena. I don't think there's I, I don't think there's anything icky in this relationship at all. I think if you don't buy into the film, you're not willing to give it the rope it requires to go. Okay, this is a platonic friendship. Mm-hmm. For me, what it symbolised was you are best friends with someone in this amazing new world. She is your guide. You are inseparable. You see how inseparable they are. It's that she doesn't say I'm a robot. She doesn't say. I'm never going to age. Mm. She doesn't reveal it. She just wants to encourage him. Mm. And then naturally you're going to feel betrayed because your best mate, whether you had feelings for her or not, represented the possibilities of growing old together and doing amazing things. And it turns out she was lying to him. Mm. That's what I got. And I certainly didn't feel like in that in the best moment of the film, the you're not funny line. I felt mm. I love that bit. Mm. I really felt that they had this bond and I certainly didn't think that George was going to lean in and kiss her or anything. I, at the same time, see why people are making this comment, but I just think it's an easy shot. Yeah, it's like, it's like I, I tried to phrase it delicately in myself in the question of Brad Bird, uh, and we were really running out of time in that one. And, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a tightrope that they're walking there, but it's also a tightrope. You know, they, they deliberately chose, and I, when I spoke to Lindelof when I was writing the piece for the, uh, for the, on this movie for the, for the magazine, about the decision to have the central relationship, or at least you know, this, what we thought would be the central relationship going in. I think now we've seen it, we can realise that there are probably relationships that are more important than Frank and Casey. But you know, this is a man in his fifties and a young girl in her seven in her teens. She's seventeen in the movie, and you know that's just the way it is. And you, you accept it and you go on with it. And it's in the same way you accept Marty McFly hanging out with Doc Brown in Back to the Future, and it's it's absolutely fine. And I think. You know this this tidal wave of snark, this tsunami of of cynicism that is, if you've listened to the movie, uh, leading us towards Toxic Cosmos three and the end of the world, uh, it just leads people to, to take pot shots at, at something that's trying to be innocent and pure and and sweet. That's uh, why I found it difficult to really criticise or dig into the movie. That's why yeah. I approached it with this kind of surface level. Oh, what about this? What about that? Because the movie seems to say, go on, don't admire my creativity. Mm. people are out there taking, as you say, pot shots at people who make an effort and try. Mm. The movie says, go on, bring it, haters. Yeah. So there you go. Don't be a Nix. Be a Frank Walker or a Casey. That's the tagline for the sequel. (laughs) There seems to be, genuinely, a a bit of a sequel feed. They're sending out these robots into different parts of the world. They've left it open. They have. They have. We don't predict that happening, though. I, I'm not so sure. I don't know. It might, I might be wrong, but I just get the feeling it critically it hasn't done brilliantly. Um, it's a hard sell anyway. It's a hard sell. You know, Clooney's a huge star, but if you look at his box office, he doesn't, apart from the Oceans movies, which obviously had a big ensemble, he doesn't, does he really drive movies to five, six hundred million worldwide? No, he doesn't. And uh, will the Disney brand drive drive this movie worldwide? Uh, and get it over the line. It probably needs about four hundred million, I'd say, to maybe have a, a, a sequel. But also, where can they go? I'm, I'm a little, I'm, I'm curious to see where they could go with the sequel. But I'm also, at this moment in time, I don't really see where a Tomorrowland sequel goes. Well, let's possibly find out. Indeed, indeed. And uh, on that bombshell, that is it for this Tomorrowland Sporter special. That is it for this Tomorrowland Spoiler Special. Thank you so much for listening. Our next Spoiler Special is going to be Jurassic World with uh, director Colin Trevorrow spilling the dino beans. That's going to be up around June 15th, so just after the film opens in the UK and the US. So do listen to that one. If you don't listen to our regular podcast, which is out every Friday, then please do so. What's What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? Don't answer that. Uh, But until 
the regular ones and until the spoiler special uh, thank you again for listening it's goodbye from Ali Ollie and myself I've been Chris Hewitt goodbye <laughs>